Section 26 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Adrian Stevens. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Romantic Opera and the Development of Choral Song. Part 1. 1. If vivid imagery was one of the chief lusts of the Romantic school, it would seem that opera should have proved one of its most typical and effective art forms. And throughout the time, opera flourished in the theatres of Germany and in Paris as a matter of course. Yet, we cannot say that the artistic output was as excellent as we might expect. Of the works to be described in this chapter, not more than eight are today thoroughly alive, and two of these are overestimated choral works. Yet, in the most real sense, the opera of the Romantic period prepared the way for Wagner, who would no doubt be called a Romanticist if he were not too great for any labels. And much of the music of the period, though it has been displaced by modern works, styles change more quickly in opera than in any other form, has a decided interest and value if we do not take too high an attitude toward it. Modern opera can be dated from Der Froschutz, yet it goes without saying, since nothing is quite new under the sun, that the work was not as novel in its day as it seems to us after the lapse of nearly a century. The elements of Romanticism it existed in opera long before Weber's time. In Gluck's Armide, the voluptuous adventures of Rinaldo in the Enchantress's Garden had breathed the spirit of the German folklore awakening, though treated in Gluck's style of classical purity. Mozart, especially, must be counted among the romanticists of opera. The final scene of Don Giovanni, with its imaginative playing with the supernatural, to the accompaniment of most impressive music, seems to be a sketch in preparation for Freischutz, and the spirit of German song had already entered into opera in The Magic Flute, which is in great part as truly German as Weber, except for its Italian grace and delicacy of treatment. Moreover, The Magic Flute was a singspiel, or dramatic work with music interspersed with spoken text the form in which Der Freischutz was written. Mozart's opera might have founded the German school had conditions been different, but beyond the fact that the story is obscure and distinctly not national, the German national movement had not yet begun. We have seen in a previous chapter how it took repeated invasions and insults from Napoleon to arouse patriotism throughout the disjointed German lands and how the patriotic spirit had to fight the repression of the courts at every turn. We have seen how it was hounded from the streets to the cellars, and how, from beneath ground, it cried for some work of art which should symbolise and express its aspiration while it was in hiding. It was this conjunction of conditions which gave Freutschutz such peculiar popularity at the time. A popularity, however, which was fully justified by its artistic value and could not have been achieved 
in such overwhelming degree without it. The Italian opera, before Weber's time, had carried everything its own way. Those patriots who longed for the creation of a German operatic art had no sort of tradition to turn to except the Singspiel. This was never regarded highly and was considered quite beneath the dignity of the aristocracy and of those who prided themselves on being artistically comme il faut. And it was frequently as cheap and thin, not to say coarse, as a second-rate vaudeville skit today. But it had in it elements of good old German humour, together with occasional doses of German pathos, and cultivated a German type of song, such as then existed. At any rate, it was all there was. Weber had no turn for the Italian ways of doing things, and little knowledge of them. So when he sought to write serious German opera that should appeal to a great mass of the people, the desire for national popularity had already been stirred in him by the success of his Leer und Schwert songs. He was obliged to write in a tongue that was understood by his fellow men. It is doubtful whether Der Freuschutz could have gained its wide popularity had its few pages of spoken dialogue been replaced by musical recitative in the Italian style. Such is the influence of tradition. But he had no need to be ashamed of the true German tradition to which he attached himself. The Singspiel, which represented all there was of German opera, frequently cultivated a style of music which, if simple, was genuinely musical and highly refined. Reichardt's Singspiel, Irvin und Elmir, to Goethe's text, has been mentioned in the chapter on Romantic Song and its Mozart-like charm of melody referred to. The Singspiel was a repository for German song and frequently drew upon German folklore or house law for its subject matter. It needed only the right genius at the right time to raise it into a supreme art form. As early as 1810, when Weber was still sowing his wild oats and flirting with a literary career, he had run across the story of the Freuschutz in Appel's newly published book of German ghost tales. The subject stirred his imagination, and he planned to make an opera of it. But he found other things to turn his hand to, and was unable to hit upon a satisfactory librettist until 1817. He met Friedrich Kind, who had already become popular with his play Das Nachtlager von Granada. Kind took up with the idea and in ten days completed his libretto. Weber worked at it slowly, but with great zest. Four years later, on the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, it was performed for the first time at the opening of the new Royal Theatre in Berlin. Its electric success, as it went through the length and breadth of Germany, has been described in a previous chapter. Kind deserves a large share of the credit for the success of the work, though it must be confessed that he did not wear his laurels with much dignity. He protested rather childishly against the excision of two superfluous scenes from his libretto and was forever trying to exaggerate his share in the artistic partnership. It seems to have been peak 
which prevented him from writing more librettos for Faber, and what a series of operas might have come out of that union. In 1843, long after Weber's death, he published a book, Das Freuschutzbuch, in which he aired his griefs. The volume would have little significance except for one or two remarkable statements in it. Every opera, he says, must be a complete whole, not only from the musical, but also from the poetical point of view. And again, I convinced myself that through the union of all arts, as poetry, music, action, painting and dance, a great whole could be formed. How striking these statements sound in view of the art theories which Wagner was evolving for himself five and ten years later. It must be said, to Kin's justice, that he had worked consistently on this theory in the writing of the Freuschutz libretto. He had insisted that Weber set his work as he had written it, and his insistence seems to have been due to more than a petty pride. The opera tells a story which had long been told, in one form or another, in German homes. Max, a young hunter, aspires to the position of chief huntsman on Prince Ottokar's domains. If he gains it, he will have the hand of the retiring chief huntsman's daughter, Agath, whom he loves. His success depends upon overcoming all rivals in a shooting contest. In the preliminary contest, he has made a poor showing. In fear of failure, he listens to the temptation of one Caspar and sells his soul to the devil, Samuel, in return for six magic bullets, guaranteed by infernal charms to hit their mark. A seventh, in Max's possession, Samuel retains for his own use. The bullets are charmed, and the price of the soul stipulated upon in Dark Wolf's Glen at midnight. In this transaction, Caspar acts as middleman in the affair in order to induce Samuel to extend the earthly life of his soul, which has similarly been sold. On the day of the shooting match, Agath experiences evil omens. Instead of a bridal wreath, a funeral wreath has been prepared for her. She decides to wear sacred roses instead. Max enters the contest, and his six bullets hit the mark. Then, at the prince's commands, he shoots at a passing dove with the seventh bullet. Agath falls with a shriek, but she is protected by her sacred wreath, and the bullet pierces Caspar's heart. Overcome with remorse, Max confesses his sin. He is about to be banished in disgrace when a passing hermit pleads for him, urging his extreme temptation in extenuation, and he is restored by the prince to all his happiness, on condition that he pass successfully through a year's probation. This story may stand as a type of the romantic opera plots of the time. Of first importance was its use of purely German materials, the national element which gave it its political significance. Only second in importance was the fact that it was drawn from folklore and hence was material, intelligible and interesting to everybody, as contrasted with the classic stories of the operas and plays of 18th century France, which were intelligible only to the upper class educated in the classics, and which was specifically intended 
to exclude the vulgar rebel from participation and so serve as a sort of test of gentility. Third was the incidental fact of the form which this democratic and national spirit took, an interest in the element of the bizarre, the fanciful and the supernatural. It was wholly suited to the tastes of the Romantic Age that the devil, Samuel, should come upon the stage in person and charm the seven bullets before the gaping eyes of the audience. The music shows Weber supreme in two important qualities, the folk sense and the dramatic sense. No one before him had been able to put into opera so well the very spirit of German folk song, as he did in Agath's famous moonlight scene, or in the impressive male chorus accompanied by the brass in the first act. In power of characterization, Weber is second only to Mozart. The opening duet of the second act, sung by the dreamy Agath and the sprightly Anachen, gives to each character a melody which expresses her state of soul. Yet the two combine with utmost grace. In his characterization of the supernatural, Weber had no adequate prototype save the Mozart of the cemetery and supper scenes in Don Giovanni, for Spohr's operatic setting of the Faust legend was classic in tone and method. The verve of the music of Wolf's Glen is exhilarating to the imagination. Samuel, whose speeches are accompanied by rolls or taps on the kettle drums, seems to live to our ears and eyes, and as the bullets, one after another, are charmed, the music rises until it bursts in a stormy fury. Many of the tunes of Der Freuschutz have become folk songs among the German people, and the bridal chorus and Agath's scene may be heard among the very children on their way home from school, while the vigorous huntsman's chorus is a staple of German singing societies wherever the German language is spoken. From the earliest years of his creative activity, Weber had been composing operas, and they grew steadily better. The one just preceding Freuschutz was Abu Hassan, a comic opera in one act telling the difficulties of Hassan and his wife Fatima to escape their debts. The dainty and bustling music has helped to keep the peace alive, but the piece which Weber intended should be his magnum opus was Urianthi, which followed Freuschutz. The critics, differing with the public in their opinion concerning the latter work, admitted Weber's power of writing in simple style, but asserted that he could not master longer concerted forms. Weber accepted the challenge and wrote Urianthi as a work of pure romanticism, separated from the national element, conceived on the broadest musical scale. It is a true opera without spoken dialogue. The music is in parts the finest Weber ever wrote, and in more than one way suggests Lohengrin, which seems to have germinated in Wagner's mind in part from the study of Urianthi. Weber's last opera, written on commission from Covent Garden, London, and completed only a few months before his death, was Oberon, a return to the Singspiel type with much of the otherworldly in its story. Urianthi had failed of popular success, chiefly through its impossibly crude and involved libretto, 
Oberon, was better, but far from ideal. It has, like A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon, Titania, Puck, and the host of fairies, together with mortal lovers whose destinies become involved with those of the elves. The music is often charming, revealing a delicacy of imagination not found in Freuschutz, but it is lacking in characterising power, and reveals its composer's lessening bodily and mental vigour. Weber had established German opera on a par with Italian, and there stood men ready to take up his mantle. Chief of these was Heinrich Marschner. He is best known by his opera Hans Heiling, which tells the adventurer of the king of the elves who takes human form as the schoolmaster, Hans Heiling, in order to win a mortal maiden. The music is full of romantic imagination and is generally supposed to have influenced Wagner in the writing of The Flying Dutchman. Marschner's other important operas are Templer und Juden, founded upon Ivanhoe, and The Vampire. Konradin Kreutzer, 1780-1849, was a prolific contemporary of Marschner's, but little of his music has remained to our time outside of Das Nachtlager von Granada and a few songs. The music of the opera is often thin, but now and then Kreutzer could catch the German folk spirit as scarcely any others could, save Weber. Lortzing, 1801-1851, was a more gifted musician, and several of his operas are occasionally performed now. Chief of these is Saar und Zimmermann, which tells the adventures of Peter the Great of Russia working among his shipbuilders. In more farcical vein is Der Wildschutz. The music admirably suits the bustling comedy of peasant intrigue. E.T.A. Hoffman, who so deeply influenced Schumann, was a talented composer, and a number of his operas, thoroughly in the romantic spirit, were popular at the time. Nicolai's setting of Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, dating from about this time, is a comic opera classic, and Friedrich von Flotow's Martha is everywhere known. Its composer, 1812 to 1883, wrote numerous operas, German and French, but at least one besides Martha is still popular in Germany, Stradella. His music is, however, more French than German, though its rhythmic grace and piquancy, its easy, simple melody, are universal in their appeal. Two more important figures, musically considered, are Schumann, with his one opera, Genoveva, and Peter Cornelius, with several works which deserve more frequent performance than they receive. Schumann had well-defined longings toward dramatic activity, but had the customary difficulties of discriminating musicians in finding a libretto. He hit upon an adaptation of Hebel's Genoveva, a play drawn from a medieval legend, rather diffuse and uneven in workmanship, but suffused with a noble poetic spirit that is only beginning to be appreciated. The play lacks the dramatic elements necessary for successful operas, and Schumann's music, though filled with beauties, is not fully successful in characterization, and hence 
tends to become monotonous. The overture, however, is a permanent part of our concert programmes. We feel about Schumann as about Schubert, whose several operas, Firebress, Alfonso und Estrella and others, need be no more than mentioned, that they might have produced great dramatic works had they been permitted to live a little longer. A man of ample musical stature and far too little reputation is Cornelius. He was an actor and painter before turning to music. For some years, he served Liszt as secretary and confidant at Weimar, working hard at music while acting as a sort of literary press agent for the more radical tendencies in music. He was one of the earliest to understand and believe in Wagner's music and theories. See chapter 11. As early as 1855, he was attempting to apply them to comic opera. The result was the two-act opera, The Barber of Baghdad, which Liszt thought highly of and brought to performance under his own direction at the Weimar Court Theatre. But the denizens of Weimar were, by this time, tired of the fad of being radical and laughed the piece off the stage. It was in disgust at this fiasco that Liszt decided to give up his directorship in Weimar, and after a few more months of gradually slipping away from his duties, he left the town for Italy, returning thereafter only for occasional visits. The Barber of Baghdad, the libretto by Cornelius himself, carries out Wagner's theories concerning the close union of text and music, the dramatic and meaty character of the libretto, the fusion of recitative and cantilena style, and the use of the leitmotif. It is full-bodied music, excellent in technique, and, moreover, filled with delightful musical humour and beautiful melodies, but it insists on treating its sparkling plot with high artistic seriousness, and this mystified the Weimar audience, who, no doubt, failed to see why one should take a comic opera so in earnest. Cornelius's later opera, The Cid, was a serious work in the Wagnerian style, and necessarily was overshadowed by Wagner's great works, then just becoming known. It is diffuse and uneven, but the last opera, Gunlud, left unfinished at the composer's death and completed by friends, contains much to justify frequent revival. 2. The movement, which we have just discussed, had its parallel in France, though there the nationalistic element was lacking. Conditions did not call for it. The fight had long since been fought. Refer to chapter 1. But in France, like in Germany, the romantic opera, the Drame Lyrique, was to grow out of the lighter type, the opera comique, the French equivalent of the Singspiel. Before discussing that development, however, we must consider for a moment the work of a composer who has already engaged our attention and who cannot be classed with any of his compatriots. Hector Berlioz stood apart from the course of French opera. Fashionable people in his day applauded the pomposity of Meyerbeer and Alevi, the facility of Aubert, but made short work of Berlioz's operas when these were fortunate enough to reach performance. Berlioz might conceivably have adapted himself 
to the popular taste, but he was too sincere an artist and too impetuous an egotist. He continued to the end of his life writing the best he was capable of and contracting debts. His operas were much in advance of his day and are, in many respects, in advance of ours. They continue to be appreciated by connoisseurs, but the public has little use for the high seriousness of their music. A daring French impresario recently brought himself to a huge financial failure by attempting a series of excellent operas on the best possible scale, and in his list was Benvenuto Cellini, which had no small part in swinging the scale of fortune against him. The second part of Les Troyens was performed near the end of Berlioz's life and was a flat failure. It did not even succeed in stirring up discussion. The public was simply indifferent. The first part of The Capture of Troy did not reach the stage until Felix Mottl organised his Berlioz cycle at Karlsruhe in 1893. Doubtless, the chief factor which led to the failure of these excellent works was their lack of balanced and readily intelligible melody. Berlioz's melodic writing was always a little dry, and one must be something of a gourmet to get beneath the surface to the rare beauty within. But, on the whole, it is fair to say that the music fails of its effect simply because opera publics are too superficial and stupid. Yet, it is possible to see signs of improvement in this respect, and we may hope for the day when Berlioz's operas will have some established place on the lyric stage. Beatrice and Benedict, the libretto adapted by Berlioz from Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, is a work filled to the brim with romantic loveliness and animal life. It is one of that small class of comic operas of which the Barber of Baghdad is a distinguished member, which are of the finest musical quality throughout, yet thoroughly in accord with the gaiety of their subjects. The thrice lovely scene and duet which opens the opera has a pervading perfume of romanticism not often equalled in opera, and the rollicking chorus of drunken servants in the second act is that rarest of musical achievements, solid and scholarly counterpoint used to express boisterous humour. Shakespeare has rarely had the collaboration of a better poet-musician. Benvenuto Cellini takes an episode in the artist's life and narrates it against the brilliant background of fashionable Rome in carnival time. The music is picturesque and the carnival scenes are brilliant and effective, but a far greater interest attaches to Berlioz's double opera, The Trojans. It was the work on which Berlioz lavished the affection and inspiration of his last years, the failure of which broke his heart. In it, a remarkable change has come over the frenzied revolutionist of the thirties. It is a work of the utmost restraint, of the finest sense of form and proportion, of truly classical purity. Romain Roland has pointed out the classical nature of Berlioz's personality, and the paradox is amply justified by this last opera. In Roland's view, Berlioz was a Mozart born out of his time. His sensitive soul 
eternally in need of loving or being love, was seared by the noise and bustle of the age and reflected it in his music until disappointment and failure had forced him to withdraw into his own personality and write for himself and the muses. Berlioz's admiration for Gluck's theories, music and artistic personality is vividly recorded in the earlier pages of the memoirs. But in his student days, there was no opportunity for such an influence to show itself. In his last years, it came back. All Gluck's refinement, high artistic aim and classic self-control, but deepened by a wealth of technical mastery that Gluck knew nothing of. We are amazed as we look over the choruses of the Trojans to see the utter simplicity of the writing, which is never for a moment routine or commonplace, the simplicity of high and rigid selection. The first division of the opera tells the story told in the Iliad of the finding of the wooden horse, the entrance into Troy, the night sally, and the sack of the city. Cassandra, priestess of woe, warns her people, but it is received with deaf ears. Over the work there hangs the tragic earnestness of the Iliad, which Berlioz loved and studied. In the second division, the Trojans are at Carthage, and instead of war, we have the voluptuous lovemakings of Dido and Aeneas, and the final tragedy of the Trojan queen, all told with such emotional intensity that the music is almost worthy to stand beside that of Wagner. The damnation of Faust, which follows the course of Goethe's play, with special emphasis on the supernatural elements, freely interpolated, is best known as a concert work, being hardly fitted for the stage at all. It is picturesque in the highest degree. Berlioz's mastery of counterpoint and orchestration is here at its highest. The interpolated Rakotzi March is universally known, and the Dance of the Sylphs is one of the stock examples of Berlioz's use of the orchestra for eerie effects. The Chorus of Demons is sung for the sake of linguistic accuracy to the words which Swedenborg gives as the authentic language of hell. Berlioz's music admits of no compromise. Either it must come to us or we must come to it. We have been trying ever since his death to patch up some kind of middle course. H.K.M. End of section 26